But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. Quick question. As we were uh, having that read to us, did anyone think of that praise song? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yeah. I was like, yes. Never mind. Sorry. It's a little, uh, dry humor this morning, and it failed miserably. Uh, let me pray for us. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you so much for your mercies, for they are new every morning. And your faithfulness, O oh Lord, it is indeed so great. And Father, we are evidence of your great faithfulness to us by the fact that you faithfully summon us week in and week out to take this rhythm of coming, coming before you, gathering together as your people, to sit at your feet, to hear your word, and to commune with you and with one another in this beautiful experience known as worship. Father, we come to you very much exhausted, very much tattered, frustrated, or maybe just feeling very confused or settled or maybe nothing at all. Lord, wherever we may be in this spectrum of our spiritual and emotional life, we ask that you would meet us here and that even if we don't find immediate gratification in your word, that it would still plant deep within our hearts so that when the season is right, It would bear fruit and be a tremendous source of sweetness to ourselves and to those around us. Oh, Father, would you enable us now to hear everything that you want us to hear today and that you would banish whatever distracting thoughts, whatever fears and anxieties that may be weighing us down and that you would now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you this question. When you imagine the kinds of people who would possibly be suffering in hell for all eternity, what a gruesome way to begin a message, but let's begin with that question. Imagine for a moment the types of people that you think will be suffering for all eternity in the fires of hell, as the book of Revelation teaches us. What kinds of people do you imagine would those people be? 
What kinds of people do you imagine are going to be suffering tremendously for all eternity in hell? Well, chances are, as you think about that question, you'll probably be thinking of some really dark, sinister people, right? Serial killers, rapists, child sex traders, you know, things of that sort. Or maybe certain gruesome names in our history like Mussolini, Hitler, Bin Laden, you know, Kim Jong-il would cross through your mind and you think, yeah, those are the kinds of people that we would see in hell for all eternity, right? And in many ways, you would not be far off. Because if you do read the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John gives us a sneak preview of the kinds of things that people like that will suffer for, he does seem to verify those kinds of characters. Revelation 21, starting in verse 8. Can we have it up there? Listen to what John describes as the people who will be in hell for all eternity, suffering miserably. He says, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be... In the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Yeah, so there it is. And so you read this list and you think to yourself, yeah, that sounds about right. Those are the people who should be in hell for all eternity. Ah, but did you know that what I just read to you was not the full list that John lists out in Revelation? I only gave you a partial list. What I want to do now is to read to you the full list, and I want you to pay special attention to the very first group of people, the very first group of condemned sinners who suffer for all eternity. Can we have all of Revelation 21 up there? But he starts off as this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, when I first read this list, and I come across the very first group of people, the cowardly, it just seems a little off, right? Really? The Bible says that cowards deserve the burning solvers of hell really the cowards deserve to be on the same list as serial killers serial rapists you know child molesters really that makes no sense why are the cowardly why are people who are timid why are they considered to be in the same category worthy of condemnation according to the bible especially when you consider the standard definition of what a coward is according to dictionary.com a coward is quote a person who lacks courage in facing danger difficulty opposition pain etc a timid or easily intimidating person now This is not a very flattering definition of a person. This is not a very flattering thing to be as a person. And yet, would we go so far as to say that a coward deserves the kind of eternal death and suffering as, say, a homicidal maniac? Really? That makes no sense. God, what are you thinking? Why in the world would you say that a coward is worthy the same level of punishment than, say, a mass murderer, right? Or a psychopath murderer? Well, the answer really comes down to one word that the Bible teaches us, and that word is endurance. Endurance, or as the old King James sometimes puts it, perseverance. Believe it or not, the Bible places a very high value in the ability to have endurance in living life on this earth. The Bible says that having a life of endurance is so important to God to where if you lack it, that is, if you are constantly quitting, if you're constantly timid to where you don't move forward in the direction where God wants you to go, then God would say that you are worthy of the kind of judgment that would be categorically reserved for those who we would think are crazy people. And the question is, why? Why is endurance so important to God to where he expects us to live this out as his followers? Well, that's the question that we're going to answer as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as we do, we're going to see three things as it pertains to this thing known as endurance. Number one, the call for endurance. Number two, the blessings of endurance. And finally, the power 
of endurance. The call for endurance, the blessings of endurance, and finally the power for endurance. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the call for endurance. Let's read verse 7 and 9 of our passage again where, (coughs) excuse me, the Apostle Paul writes the following. (coughs) Excuse me. But we have this treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now notice how Paul describes himself and how he really describes the leaders of the early church, the other apostles and missionaries who were working with him. What does he call himself? He calls himself and these prestigious leaders of the church jars of clay. Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean by jars of clay? Well, here's a little historic background. Jars of clay in the ancient world... were the equivalent of our Ziploc bags today, right? They were the easy, disposable dishware of the common man in the ancient world where everyone used it for pretty much anything and everything. This is why if you ever go to old archaeological digs, almost sure enough, you will always find tons and tons of shards of broken clay jars because it was so pervasive in the ancient world. Everyone used it. It was highly disposable. It was used for everything and anything, right? And yet, you wonder, because it was so common, so cheap, you have to wonder, why would the great Apostle Paul refer to himself with that kind of commonality, with that kind of, that kind of baseness of value? Why would he call other apostles who are carrying the precious gospel, why would he refer to them as jars of clay as well? Well, here's why. Paul is trying to teach us something about the world that we live in. He is trying to emphasize the reality that you and I are a part of every day and every night. And that is we live in a world filled with real dangers, real threats, that has the real potential of crushing us, shattering us, as easy as it would be for a jar of clay to shatter You see, the more you read the writings of Paul, the more you come to understand that his understanding of the world is by far the polar opposite of the way Disney portrays this world, okay? Our world, according to Paul and really to the whole Bible, is that this is a dark, broken world filled with tragedies, filled with sorrow, filled with pain, to where it could literally shatter us. It could literally shatter us from the inside out. It is filled with tragic events like tsunamis and cancer and car accidents. It's filled with broken and despicable people like bullies and racists and and homicidal maniacs and, and, and people who are just sinister and cruel. Now, with this picture painted before us, you would think that as Paul presents to us how broken the world is, that out of love for his people, out of love for Christians, which he has, you would think that Paul would commend to us that we need to avoid those things in life. You could just imagine that if you were Paul and he cares about Christians and he cares about the church, that Paul would say something like, you know, guys, this world is dark, it's painful, so do as much as you can to avoid it at all costs. I mean, don't we do that, parents, when it comes to our kids? Don't we try to teach our kids to avoid all the pains and tragedies of life, to avoid as much suffering as possible? And so we assume, surely, Paul, if you love the church as much as you say you do, Wouldn't you tell us to do the same thing? Move out to the suburbs. Live in a nice neighborhood. Send your kids to that nice, pretty, clean, and safe school. Get a 401k plan. Get a health insurance. Get everything that you can so that you can avoid the things of life. Just live an isolated, unprovoking life. And yet when you read our passage, Paul tells us that as followers of God, that is not what we are to do. In fact, he himself shows by his own example of the kind of Christian faith that he feels compelled to live out. Listen to what he says 
starting in verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Does that sound like a man to you who is trying to isolate and insulate himself from the pains and miseries of life? No. Paul understands that when it comes to him living out his Christian faith, and therefore by implication how you should be living out your Christian faith, is that you don't avoid, you don't run away, you don't isolate from all the things in life that make it uncomfortable. No, you run right into it. You go into it headstrong, no matter what trials, what difficulties that you face. If God is leading you in a direction of pain and sorrow, you go in that direction, no matter what the outcome could be, in fact. Paul even lists out in detail in a later chapter of this very book, 2 Corinthians 11, and he lists out some of the things that he had to endure in order for him to live out his Christian faith. Listen to what he says in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. He says, I know I sound like a man-man, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leader gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty, and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold with, without enough clothing to keep me warm. What's the point of all this? The point is simple. In order for you to live the Christian life, it requires you to have endurance. Let me say that again. In order for you to live the Christian life, it requires for you to have endurance. Endurance. That's a word we hear often, but what do we really mean by that? What does the Bible mean? What does Paul mean when it says that we're called to live a life of endurance? Well, I love how one Christian pastor defines it. Eugene Peterson defines uh, endurance in the following way. Prolonged courage. Endurance is really prolonged courage. It's courage that goes on and on and on. Endurance is the willingness to maintain your courage for the long haul, to never give up. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what scary thing, what uncertainty, what circumstances that are beyond your control that terrify you, Paul says living the Christian life requires enduring through those things and to stay courageous, to stay firm in your convictions, no matter how anxious producing it may be, no matter how worried you may be in reaction to it, you are to prolong your courage. Living the Christian life, part of the core values means that you have courage that keeps going and going no matter what life has to throw at you. And this is something that we all need to understand, especially those of you here investigating Christianity. If you are a non-Christian, I hope Dear God, that you would understand this. And the reason why I'm kind of single-handedly pointing out to you is because we live in a culture that is teaching you that we Christians are a bunch of pansies, that we are a bunch of psychological, shivering, worry words that are always terrified of all things to where we have to resort to creating this cosmic fantasy to ease our ignorant fears and to, and to justify our narrow-minded way of thinking, right? That's the persona that we have in this society, towards us. That's the way Christians are perceived in our society. In fact, one major cultural icon of Western society that propagated this is Sigmund Freud. You guys know who Freud was, right? The Austrian psychoanalyst. 
he writes these words in his book, The Future of Illusion, of an Illusion. This is what he says about Christian beliefs. He says this, quote, They, religious beliefs, are illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind. As we already know, the terrifying impressions of helplessness in childhood arouse the need for protection, for protection through love, which was provided by the Father. Thus, the benevolent rule of divine providence allays our fears of the dangers of life. Freud says the reason why Christians are Christians is because we have daddy issues and we need daddy to protect us. And so we fabricate a heavenly father that alleviates our sense of fear, right, so that we can cope in the world that we live in. See, this is the popular mindset that is in our society today, that Christians are not people who endure, that we are not courageous. But, oh, if Freud would have only read the historical accounts of what Paul writes in his letters, because if he did, he would know how foolish he really is to say these things. The fact of the matter is, the life God calls us to live as followers of Jesus is one that requires tremendous courage of incredible endurance. Now, before I go on, please don't come to some wrong conclusions to what I am saying, because, yes, God calls us to a life of incredible endurance, but that doesn't necessarily translate that you have to do something insane and incredibly radical in order to live out this endurance. In other words, don't say, don't think that what I'm saying translates as, oh, the Bible means, the Bible tells us that if we want to have tremendous courage and incredible endurance, that we need to move to the Middle East, we need to hide from terrorists and start preaching the gospel to as many Islamic terrorists as possible as we're in hiding from them, right? Like something so radical where we have to do something so crazy. Maybe, but even if that's not what God calls you to do, God still calls you to have tremendous endurance, right? To have prolonged courage, even in the daily ordinary things in life. Did you guys know that living the day-to-day Normal, ordinary life of Christianity also requires tremendous endurance. It requires prolonged courage. I love what Bill Hybels, a pastor in Chicago, how he explains it. Listen to what he says. I regret the fact that we usually hear about courage only when someone does some extreme act of heroism that attracts media attention, carrying an old woman out of a burning building, diving into an icy pond to save a drowning child, risking gunfire while dragging a buddy to safety. I love these stories. But they seem bigger than life. Dramatic once-in-a-lifetime opportunities never seem to happen to ordinary folks like you and me. But the older I get, the more I understand that it takes a great deal of courage to face life's ordinary, everyday challenges. Every single day, we make choices that show whether we are courageous or cowardly. We choose between the right thing and the convenient thing, sticking to a conviction or caving in for the sake of comfort, greed, or approval. These choices come our way every day, rapid fire. We face them so frequently that we forget that we are even making them, and we sometimes find ourselves going with the flow instead of carefully making courageous choices. Living the Christian life requires tremendous courage, whether it's in the context of living in a, in a very dangerous, hostile environment, whether it's on the mission field, as well as just living the normal everyday routine of life or just making little decisions that require tremendous courage will have an impact on how you live the rest of your life. Living the Christian life requires incredible endurance. Endurance. And yet we come back to the original question that we started off with. But why? Why? I mean, our God is providential. He's in control of all things. He doesn't have to put in situations to where we need to endure. So why does he do it? 
Why is it so necessary for our God to put us in situations to where we have to be courageous in the first place? Why is endurance such a valuable thing in the eyes and hearts of our, of our God? Well, the answer to that leads me to my next point, the blessings of endurance. Let's read again verse 11 to 15 of our passage where Paul writes this, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends for more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, in order to really understand what Paul is saying here, you have to know a little background that is driving him to write these words. So let me quickly give it to you. The Apostle Paul started this church in Corinth. He's the one who started this church in Corinth many years ago on his first missionary journey. And one of the things that you find as you read the background story about him in the book of Acts as he's establishing this church is that Paul single-handedly evangelized, he discipled, he shepherded, and he established this church in a very hostile city known as Corinth. And you would think that with the level of sacrifice, with the level of love, with the level of incredible generosity and commitment that Paul gave to these Corinthian Christians, that they would in turn respond with incredible love and incredible loyalty. But to your shock to discover, that actually did not happen. Paul faced tremendous backstabbing against the very people who he loved dearly and who he served faithfully to the point where they wanted to reject him as their pastor. Why? What happened? Well, if you ever read through the book of Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you would know that as Paul was leaving this city to establish other churches so he could preach the gospel in other places, in his absence, a group of outsiders, these people who called themselves super apostles, I'm not joking, they literally called themselves super apostles, came in, and for lack of a better word, they just seemed so much more sexier than Paul. In other words, they were just so well-groomed, they seemed very smart, they carried themselves in such a way that really embodied the values and and, and, and visions of the people of Corinth. In other words, they were very eloquent speakers, they were very wise in their way of thinking, they were so deep in their insight, and here's what made it worse. They went out of their way to discredit Paul to the Corinthians, where they would say things like, yeah, man, your pastor, he's whack. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Look at the way he carries himself. He stutters like a, like a fool. He doesn't speak eloquently like we do. And look at the way he describes the gospel. Compare that to how we describe the gospel. It's so profound. It's so deep. Him, he's like 101 Christianity. He's like elementary, right? He's like Christianity for dummies. That's who your Paul is, right? And as a result, the Corinthians start feeling embarrassed to be associated with Paul. They look at Paul and it brings them shame to know that he was their pastor. He was the one who established them, right? It was so humiliating for Paul because of what was happening in his church in Corinth. I mean, listen to what one British scholar, Bible scholar, by the name of Andrew Knowles puts it. He says this, quote, Paul realizes that his life would discourage most people from becoming Christians. Why? Because he has suffered many hardship in his work as an apostle and even now seems to be on the brink of defeat. Who would want to be so plain and unattractive, especially when the super apostles are such exciting people, right? Now, imagine for a moment you're Paul. 
Let's say for a moment that you are the one who started this church. You sacrificed long and hard to build this church up. And all of a sudden, almost everyone in that church turns their back on you and say that you suck. You're not a good pastor. We don't want to be associated with you whatsoever. You, you are a joke to us. You embarrass us. Don't come back. How would you react in that situation? How would you react when you poured your life into someone, into a group of people, right? and they just flat out say, we want nothing to do with you? How would you feel? Hold on to that thought as I read to you verse 11 and 12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What is he saying here? Paul is basically saying this. You know, guys, even though you think I'm a fool, even though you think I'm, 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 an, I'm a joke and I embarrass you, I still love you. And I'm committed to you. Even to the point of death so that it can give you life. Is that crazy? How would you respond like Paul, honestly, if you were in his shoes? What is going on, Paul? How could you possibly act this way? How could you make yourself even look more embarrassing, even more foolish to tolerate this kind of behavior and still say that you love them? Ah, Paul is trying to show us. He's modeling for us the blessings of endurance, which is what? He's showing us the fruit of what happens when you endure, which is you're able to love people who are unlovable. (laughs) Paul is showing us that one of the most tremendous blessings that come for when you endure is that you're able to love people who, quite frankly, are unlovable. Can you imagine what happens to life, what happens in society, What happens in a family? What happens in a marriage when people stop loving other people simply because that person is unlovable? Do you want to know why churches break up? Do you want to know why cities get divided racially? Do you want to know why marriages break down in divorce? It's because people are not willing to love people who are unlovable. Let me try and swing it to something more practical. Let's talk about marriage, for example. You know, singles, for those of you who are single or for those of you who can remember when you were single, right? We all, in our season of life, or if you're in that life right now, we all yearn for marriage or you're yearning for marriage, right? But you don't want just any marriage. You want a great marriage, right? You want a marriage where there's trust, where there's loyalty, where there's sexual chemistry, where there's, where there's joy and there's fun and there's, there's this, this compatibility that's beyond compare, right? That's the kind of marriage that we want, is it not? Isn't that the marriage you want, those of you who are single? Isn't that the marriage you still want, those of you who are married? And yet the fact of the matter is, for most of us, and I speak generally speaking, most of us, we don't experience that, or if we hear about it, it doesn't happen to us. Why? Because the fact of the matter is, for many of us, we're not willing to endure to have that kind of marriage. You know, I've talked to some couples who are recently married, Some of them are people that we've married. My wife and I officiated their weddings. And they'll go through a hard time. And they'll say things like, you know, Pastor, I don't know. I'm not saying I made a mistake here, but it's not easy. And I don't get it because when we were dating, when we were engaged, and even on the day of wedding, we were just so happy. We were just so sure that we were going to have this kind of wedding and this kind of marriage and this kind of family life. 
But as soon as things got settled and as soon as we started going through the daily grind, he just morphed into a pig or she morphed into an evil witch. And it's hard. I don't get it. Were we being naive? Was he lying to me? Was she lying to me? Was God lying to us? We don't get it. Can you help us, Pastor John? You know what I always say to couples like that? I always say, you know, you weren't being lied to. God didn't lie to you. You guys weren't lying to each other. You weren't being dumb and naive at the time. Well, maybe you were just a little bit. But that doesn't explain all of what you were going through at the time. No, you know what it was? God was giving you a sneak preview of what your marriage could be if you're willing to endure. You know that euphoric joy and excitement you get when you're with the love of your life and you know you're going to marry this person. You're so excited. That's God giving you a foretaste of what 20, 30 years of marriage could be if you're willing to endure, if you're willing to be courageous, if you're willing to love that spouse on days and weeks that they are unlovable. Life teaches us and scripture affirms that some of the greatest blessings in life and really the greatest blessings of life come when you're willing to be courageous and wait for it and to endure it. The fact of the matter is we are a culture that are quitters. We give up too quickly. And we don't give God the opportunity to work in our hearts in such a way to where the fruit of endurance comes forth to where we can enjoy its sweetness. But the fact of the matter is God is telling us, Paul is telling us, that endurance brings forth good fruit. You just have to be courageous enough to hold on. And to most importantly, to love in seasons when it's so hard to love. That is what Paul is trying to teach us. All the blessings of life, the greatest blessings, come when we're willing to endure and to be courageous rather than giving up, throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done. In fact... Paul goes on to tell us that the ultimate blessing of all comes from endurance. And to explain what I mean by that, let me go to my final point, the ultimate blessing for endurance. Let's read verse 16 down to verse 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul identifies for us the ultimate blessings that God promises to give if we're willing to cultivate a character of endurance. He refers to it in verse 17 as the eternal weight of glory. Wow. What is that? <laughs> so sounds so great, and you're like, okay, what does it mean? What is the eternal weight of glory, Paul? Well, let's kind of break it down and see if we can understand it by looking at it from part to part. First, let's linger on this word glory. We hear about it all the time in the church. We read about it all the time when we go in the Bible. What exactly is glory? You ever wondered that? You know, everyone's like, glory to God, glory to God. What exactly are you saying, man? What is glory? I love how one pastor by the name of Randy Pope, he gives this very clear definition. He says, what is glory? It is often defined as renown, fame, honor, or beauty. A more comprehensive definition describes it as the condition of highest achievement, prosperity, pleasure, pride, honor, admiration, splendor, magnificent. For me, the word that best captures the essence of glory is satisfaction. Satisfaction. You ever been disappointed? You ever been dissatisfied, right? Well, think of the opposite of that. That's glory, right? You ever wonder, man, this marriage is boring. 
This job sucks. This church is miserable, right? Glory is the complete opposite. Glory is experiencing the the euphoric joy that comes from having the best meal, being in the best relationship, having the best marriage, having the one most wonderful kids in the world, being having the best job that you could ever think of, right? All the things that we all yearn for, all the things that we are fighting to have. Paul says those are snippets of what glory is. Think of all those things combined and then multiplied by infinity. That's the glory that Paul is speaking of. Add that other word, eternal, never-ending. Can you imagine having never-ending joy, never-ending satisfaction, never-ending bliss? That is what God promises us in his word if we're willing to endure in living the Christian life and staying faithful to him in a world that is constantly tempting us to not be faithful to him. Now, some of you hearing this, you're like, you know what, Pastor John, this sounds a little too good to be true. And, you know, honestly, why should we believe it because you're saying it? And you know what? My response is don't believe it because I'm saying it. Who am I? Who am I for you to believe anything that I say? No, believe what Paul is saying, really what the Bible is saying, because God promises it. God is the one who promises us that if we endure, we will experience this wonderful joy and bliss known as glory for all eternity. Well, you might say, well, who is God? Who is God? Who is God? I'll tell you who your God is. He is a God who loved us so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, and he lived a life of incredible endurance. And you know what he endured? He endured incredible humiliation incredible alienation, incredible pain and suffering that goes beyond any other human being has ever experienced or will ever experience. He endured tremendous pain, sorrow, loneliness, and abject humiliation. Why? So he could have you. What is that? That's the gospel. That's the God who you worship. That's the God who's saying, believe me and endure. Surely a God who's willing to suffer the tremendous pain and sorrows and humiliation that he had to endure for us, do we not think that he is worth believing when he says, if you endure, you will have an eternal weight of glory? The promises of God are attached to his character. And the way God shows his character most preeminently is in the gospel in his display of how much he's willing to suffer and endure for you. Which means, if you don't believe what he promises that's attached to the gospel, that means not only you're not believing the promise, you're also not believing in the gospel, right? You're not believing that your God loves you as much as he does to where he was willing to do what he did on the cross, which is why that when you choose not to be courageous, when you choose not to endure because you don't believe the promises that he has, that is attached to that, mainly eternal life, eternal bliss, you're essentially saying, I don't believe you love me. I don't believe you you love me to the extent that you displayed it on the gospel. I don't believe the gospel. This is why those who don't endure are worthy of condemnation. Because it's not simply a, a momentary area of weakness and a momentary act of cowardice that makes you so worthy of condemning, but it's what you are saying through your act of cowardice that you don't believe God's gospel. You don't believe in the love of God that was undeniably proclaimed to you when Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And so here's my question to you, NCF. 
Do you have a quitter mindset or do you have a mindset that endures? And let's be honest, living this Christian life is not easy. Throwing in the towel is so tempting, is it not? Living the kind of marriage God calls you to live, that is hard. It's so much easier to have a marriage where you are essentially throwing in the towel to where you're willing to give up. Give up on God, give up on your spouse, give up on your kids. It's so easy going to work with the coworkers that you have, and instead of living out a faith that is on display for people to be encouraged, it's so much easier just throw in the towel and say, you know what, God, forget it. I don't want to evangelize to these people. I don't want to live out my faith. These guys should go to hell. I don't like them. And it's so easy to cave in and to contribute to the culture of toxicity that is so pervasive to where you contribute to the curse rather than pushing it back. It's so easy to be part of the church and to see all the politics and all the gossiping and be like, man, I hate this church. This church sucks. I'm going to go search after a church that doesn't exist, the perfect church. And you keep going to church, to church, to church, complaining, bitter, saying this church is that, this church is that, whack, whacker, wackest of all. You know, all the while, you're not cultivating anything. You're not enduring. You're quitting. Do you cultivate a character of endurance? Do you understand that when you are enduring, you are recognizing the amazing, enduring love of God for you? Do you believe it? Let's bow our heads for just a moment. I'd like to challenge you again, like I did last week, and moving forward, we're going to do this every week. What area in your life do you find that you're lacking in courage to where you are not putting in your spirit of endurance? Is it your marriage? Is it your workplace? Is it this community? Is it the community that you come from? You know, living in this world is so difficult, is it not? To where it's so easy to feel like we're being shattered to the core of our being. But could it be that God is maybe challenging you this morning to cultivate a spirit of endurance? That instead of complaining and whining about how difficult life is, that maybe he's summoning you to act more courageously, to have more endurance. I want to invite you now just to be sensitive to what the Spirit may be calling you to acknowledge in your life and to ask for His grace. Can we just spend a few moments right now going before Him and thinking and reflecting about how God may be calling you to it? Let's pray.
And Father, we ask that as we ponder and think about the call to endure, God, I pray for all of us. Pray for your strength to be at work in our hearts. Because, Father, we are surrounded by so many things that discourage us, so many people that frustrate us, so many contexts that weigh us down to the point where we just want to say, enough is enough. Leave me alone. But, Father, we ask that we would not cave in to those things, that we would not throw in the towel And that we would never say to anyone those horrific words, we're done. Because, Lord, you've never said that to us. And in Jesus, you will never say that to us. Thank you, God, that you are a God who not only loves us with a forgiving love, with an eternal love, but you love us with an enduring love. A love that can never weaken, a love that can never change a love that can never be revoked because through your son you have ensured that your love for us will go on for all eternity. And Lord, as we seek to live like you and as we seek to embody this love, would you help us to live that out in these areas of life that you call us to live, these stations of life that you call us to serve as ministers, whether it be to our families, whether it be to our brothers and sisters in Christ at the church, whether it be to our friends and neighbors, our siblings, whether it be to our coworkers, Lord, help us to embody the beautiful fruit that comes from an enduring life, the fruit that exhibits the sweetness of your love for us in Jesus. Father, people have tasted so much of the bitterness of cowardly living. Oh God, would you cause us as a church family to not be like that, but instead to be a source of joy, a source of hope, a source of gospel living so that when people are around us, that when people hear us, when people see us, they would not see us, but they would see the one to whom we seek to represent, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the all-enduring one. Oh God, would you help us to do that? all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people together said, amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give God his tithes and our offerings.